Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. What test are we talking? Well, 
we're talking about a test for Bloom disease, uh, Bloom syndrome. It is an autosomal recessive disorder, which means that the carriers may be unaware that they carry a mutation on the BLM gene. And so obviously, if you have a genetic defect and you don't want to pass it on, you've only got two choices. One, voluntarily sterilize yourself. Or two, have an abortion in the event that you get pregnant. Those are pretty much your options. So we're talking about self-extermination. So let's delve into this test, find out about this test. You know, what does it detect? What does it uh, prevent? And how does it help uh, somebody? Okay. So the Food and Drug Administration announced today they have authorized marketing of a direct-to-consumer genetic test from the company 2-3-and-me. And the test is designed to identify healthy individuals, get the word healthy, healthy individuals, who carry a gene that could cause Bloom's syndrome in their offspring. In other words, it does not necessarily cause this disease in the offspring, but it could cause a disease in the offspring. Okay, so already, okay, alarm bell go off, ding, 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 a test that is detecting something that is not harmful. Not necessarily harmful, as in not necessarily the truth. All right, we got that one figured out. And the, case, the agency also noted that it will now classify carrier screening tests, such as this one, as class two products, which means they are subject to general and special control. And so let's find out what special controls are. Special controls can include performance standards, post-market surveillance, patient registries, special labeling, requirements, and guidelines. So the agency specifically noted they will not require pre-market reviews for direct-to-consumer carrier screening tests. In other words, it is not necessary for the FDA to review whether a direct-to-consumer carrier screening test is safe or effective prior to approving it. The agency plans to announce their intention of exempting these products. It will have, of course, a 30-day public comment period regarding the decision, and if that matters. So you have a test that is not that is for sale. It's not necessary to prove if it's safe or if it's effective. All right. It gets better. And so the FDA believes that in many circumstances, it is not necessary for consumers to go through a licensed practitioner to have direct access to their personal genetic information, said Dr. Gutierrez, director of the Office of In Vitro Diagnostics and Radiological Health and the FDA Center for Devices and Radiological Health in the agency press release. Now, this is key. Uh, he regulates devices and radiological health. This is, this is awesome, like, you know, radiation. 
So it's not as to whether or not a patient should or should not require uh, doctor authorization and from the patient perspective, of course, the more autonomy the better. But you also look from the other perspective because it's not like the FDA asked patients what they should do before they made a decision, but they did ask somebody. And so the question is, who does this decision benefit? Who would want patients to be able to spend money out of their pocket for a test without first going through a doctor? Answer, people who manufacture tests. There you go. Who would not want this to happen? Answer, insurance companies. Why not? Because if every dollar that you spend through your insurance plan, through a doctor, the insurance company gets a percentage of that money. And so what the FDA is now creating is another stream of cash that bypasses insurance companies. This is an important concept. All right. So the today's authorization and accompanying classification, along with the FDA's intent to exempt these devices from FDA pre-market review, supports innovation. In other words, supports increased sales of new things that have pain and will ultimately benefit consumers. Yes, because now one can reach into their pockets with greater ease. You don't need to go through the doctor. You don't need to bribe the doctor. These tests have the potential to provide people with information about possible mutations in their genes that could be passed to their children. But maybe won't be, but could be. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. The, um, the drug slash device companies, it's online reviews that we believe, uh, in 2013 spent $4 billion on commercials and ads to influence consumers to consume drugs. And the same year, they spent $24 billion on doctors. There's only 800,000 doctors in the United States, and they spent $24 billion trying to influence them. There's 300 million people in the United States, and they only had to spend $4 billion to influence them. So obviously, it's cheaper to influence people. The other thing is the result of these ad campaigns has been phenomenal growth in the use and consumption of drugs. Hard for me to believe that someone watching those commercials would be moved to take any of those drugs, but apparently it's working. Somebody's taking those drugs as a result of those commercials. So then, if you're a drug company or a device company or a testing company, you would rather move the doctor aside because the cost of marketing to the doctor is extremely expensive on a per-doctor basis and market directly to the patient so they can reach directly in their pocket and spend the money without that expenditure going through an insurance company that takes a percentage. Okay, so this is a new route of medical consumption that is being opened up by the Food and Drug Administration. Okay, but we're going to find out a little more about this test as we go along. Okay, so Bloom syndrome is an autosomal receptive disorder. That means you need two genes, one from each parent in order to get it. 
which means the carriers may be unaware that they carry a mutation in the BLM gene, but their child could be affected. The symptom is characterized by short stature, usually under five feet. As you guys know, I live in Panama, and there's a lot of people here under five feet. It's just the way it is. Sun sensitivity and an increased risk for cancer. The syndrome is rare among the general population. That's the general population. It's rare. I've done a lot of medical reading. I've read a lot of medical stuff. I just want to know. That had to look up the meaning of rare. Rare means less than 1 in 10,000. That's, that's what the definition out there of rare is. But it's more common in the Central and Eastern European, that's Ashkenazi, Jewish population. Now, here's a bit of racism here. And what am I saying racism? Am I saying it's against Jews, pro-Jews? That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we have a disease that mysteriously confines itself to one group of people. It's like sickle cell only affecting blacks. Now, how do you know I've met white people with sickle cell disease? So, obviously, there is really no such thing as a disease that affects one group. Uh, you have diseases that only affect men because they have prostate and women don't, for example, or women have ovaries and men don't. But aside from that, there is no disease whose boundaries are limited by a person's ethnic background. So, that's a serious red flag. Okay, so they're playing on are hoping that patients are racist. In this case, they're hoping that Ashkenazi Jews are racist enough to believe in this Jewish disease thing and go by this test. So let's see how many Ashkenazi Jews are affected. So in that group, one in 50,000 people are affected. So more common all of a sudden means one in 50,000. So, in other words, in order for one person to get a positive result, what would have to happen is 50,000 people would need to buy this test and take this test. And 49,999 of them would have wasted their money because, of course, this has to be negative. Now, this presumes the test is 100% accurate, zero false positives, and zero false negatives. Okay? So we're targeting this test right now towards, I should say we, but this company is targeting this test towards Ashkenazi Jews. All right. So it's nice to start small. You want to pick a target market group and make the marketing go much easier. Okay. The agency notes that while it is not regulating who can purchase or use the test, the company is required to provide adequate information in the label such that users will understand what the test means. And if sold over the counter, how they can reach a board-certified clinical molecular geneticist or equivalent for pre- and post-test counseling. This makes the marketing very, very easy because they're only going to refer people to a board-certified molecular geneticists, and there are not too many of those. So there's a very small number of people that they have to include in order to get things to go just right. Now, the other thing to look at is if this is a good test, and let's just, for the sake of discussion, presume 
that this is a good test, then let's just say it's uh, 99.99% accurate, which means that it's 0.0001% inaccurate. So in other words, if you test 50,000 people, you're, and this is 99.9% accurate test, then you're going to get 50 inaccurate test results. As we take a discussion, let's say, uh, well, we know for sure, if you're going to get 50 inaccurate test results, you can only get one positive one. So let's say best case scenario, one in 50 of these test results are positive. But it does detect that one genetic defect, but erroneously pegs 49. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we have 1 divided by 50, 0.02, which means 98% of the positives will be false positives. And that's what the test is 99.9% accurate. So we have a test that is literally going to erroneously tell 98% of the people who have a positive result that they are carrying a gene. Now, what, what does this mean? Well, if they say this is a test, it's only a test. So the agency notes that while it's not regulating who can purchase or use the test, the company is required to provide okay, information. The approval is a significant shift in direction for the agency. In 2013, the FDA sent 2-3-and-me to the company, the producers of the test, a warning letter directing the company to stop selling a personal genome service. The letter said the company had not obtained proper approval or demonstrated that their tests were accurate and clinically meaningful. So obviously, if you have a test, that, you know, you have a population, uh, you're testing for a disease that only affects, it doesn't even affect one in 50,000 possess the gene, which means it only affects one in 2.5 billion people. I don't even know if there's, there's 2.5 billion Ashkenazi Jews. I suspect not because there's only, you know, 8 billion people on the earth. So, in the press release today, the agency notes that two studies involving a sample of 228, involving 228 samples in a total of four laboratories have been done to show that the Bloom syndrome test is accurate. The company also performed usability testing to ensure consumers could collect adequate saliva. So, what's going on here? Well, this is such big news that the Huffington Post and Forbes magazine have weighed in on this. Do you believe this? Forbes magazine and Huffington Post. I'm impressed. I think you should be too. And so the FDA, so Forbes says, 15 months after warning the personal genomics company to discontinue providing genetic-linked health information to consumers via the spit kit. Okay, so now we have the first clue that they're measuring spit. The FDA has opened the door to restoring 
a subset of those direct-to-consumer analyses to the market. Since our announcement came from FDA late today, with the market approval of a specific home test for a variant in a single gene called BLM. If the altered gene is carried by both parents, there's a 25% chance of their offspring having a cancer predisposing disease called Bloom syndrome. Okay, now we calculated because it's one in 50,000 people that have it. You take 50,000 square and you got 2.5 billion. So one in 2.5 billion chance of an affected person showing up if we have no um, marriage of brothers and sisters and relatives kind of thing. We're not going to have that. Can't marry your, you know, you can't have children or offspring with your brother or sister. The silent carrier of a faulty gene in its autosomal recessive. Okay. Making news is the agency also took this opportunity to announce that home use genetic testing for other carrier genes will be exempt from pre-marketing approval. This means that any company can put a genetic test on the market without any FDA approval. And in particular, this test is one where people are considering basically sterilizing themselves, having abortion, uh, exterminating the next generation. I think that's a pretty hefty test, you know, a pretty serious uh, consequence that you're asking people to engage in using a test that the FDA has not approved as safe or effective. The FDA says this action creates the least burdensome regulatory task for autosomal recessive carrier screening tests with similar uses to enter the market. And so what they've done is they said we're opening up this new pathway of marketing direct to consumer, bypassing the insurance companies because they've given this big reward to the insurance companies by passing the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as some people know it. So they said to the insurance companies, here's a big pile of money. We're forcing people to buy this and give you their money under threat of IRS enforcement, which is a pretty big threat to many people. So the insurance companies get the money first. Now, I went to Morton, this is a business school, those of you who don't know. And one rule is you get the money first, you keep the money, and you always take the biggest portion for yourself. So we know what the insurance companies what we can expect them to do. I'm sure they've got a few MBA-educated people running the staff, running the show, and they know you keep as much money as you can for yourself. What this means then is people who make tests, the doctors may order the tests, but then the insurance company will refuse to pay for it and get all the rigmarole, and you've got this product and you can't, you can't sell it. So what do you do? You say to the patient, hey, you can buy this test. You don't have to see the doctor first. The patient's counting their pennies and say, oh, yeah, hmm. I can skip the doctor office visit. I don't have to do the copay or the deductible, and then I can reach in my pocket and pay for the test. Now they haven't revealed how much this test costs. Another uh, ominous sign, if you will. So this test, then, 
affects the gene is carried by one in 50,000 people. So the chances, it's a recessive gene, the chances of this one in 50,000 meeting up with another one in 50,000 and actually calculating is one in 2.5 billion. That's even rare enough. So what we then understand with this simple math is that this test is testing for something that's very unlikely to happen here on Earth. Very unlikely to happen. That's what they're testing for. They're testing for an event that, statistically speaking, is unlikely to happen in anyone's lifetime, even the lifetime of an Ashkenazi Jew, who they say is the person most likely to have this problem. So what is really being tested here? What is really being tested here is obedience. Can we market to consumers directly, and can we get them to go to a pharmacy or a store to buy a test, do perform a test on themselves, whatever inconvenience, torture, or whatever it might encompass, and then follow the results? to the point of exterminating the next generation. And that's a pretty strong order. That's pretty strong eating. You're going to have to go get a test, a test for a non-existent situation. One in 50,000 is the carrier. And what we're testing to see is will people follow the standard of care on their own and exterminate the next generation? Or, as we follow, I'm sure more tests will be released, released, will people follow a protocol and harm themselves? It's always best to ask people to first destroy and harm the next generation. For example, in the United States, when it was mentioned, well, we want the government to take on more debt, um, they said, don't, don't, don't worry, the next generation is going to pay the debt. The next generation is going to pay the debt. That was uh, 40 years ago, and guess what? The next generation is us. The people who okayed this have lived long enough to end up being the ones who have been subjected to the debt, the higher taxes, reduced services, and so on. So this always starts off with, don't worry. We're only asking you, we're only asking you to murder the next generation. We're only asking you to exterminate the next generation. And if people go for it, if people say yes, then what do they know? They know the doctor is not necessary. They know, and I say they, I mean the people who manufacture um, devices, pharmaceutical, and all of these things that doctors order, and all of these things that now the insurance company can choose not to pay for, they realize what I was taught in business school, which is that the doctor is an unnecessary middleman. Yeah, the doctor is an unnecessary middleman. So in the insurance course at Warden, it was explained to us that the goal here is to reach into the patient's pocket, extract as much money as possible, and right now the doctor, this is back in the 80s, the doctor's getting in the way here. So the doctor's giving the, the patient advice, limiting how much the patient might be spending, maybe telling the patient that uh, he's okay, 
these are all bad things. You just, you know, and, and, and so what the medical industrial complex is that how can we get money from the patient without the doctor being involved, bypass? And so that's what Obamacare is all about. So Obamacare, the medical industrial complex, a large part of which is the insurance company, said, hey, we're going to get money directly from the patient using the bullying power, the muscle power of the government when there may not even be a doctor for the patient to see. There may not even be a clinic for him to go to. There may not even be a way for him to exercise uh, access to medical care. We're going to bully him and the patient, of course, may even be perfectly good health and may never go see doctors. We don't care. We are coercing total participation. We are demanding that people give us their money for insurance, even though they may not even have a doctor in mind that they want to see. So, score one for the insurance companies. Now you have the hospitals, drug companies, testing companies, manufacturers, all in a position of having to go to the insurance company and beg for that pot of gold or a piece of that pot of gold. And so what's happened here is the, uh, the testing company has said, no, we don't want to have to go to the insurance companies or through them to beg for our piece of action. We want another pathway for us. The FDA has said, yes, we will give you a separate pathway. This is your pathway. People can now go to the store, buy your product, a medical product, without doctor permission, without doctor supervision. But, there's always a little hook here. So the little hook is, we've got to get the standard of care in there. We've got to get, as a result of consuming this product, somebody has got to be harmed. Somebody has got to die. In this case, it's the next generation. So we always start with the next generation. And you can get anything, anything by if you just say, it's not going to affect you, it's going to affect your offspring. So there you have it. Now, the FDA has three criteria for balloon syndrome test approval, and they did have some criteria for this test, but the FDA said, you know, for all future tests, no, no, no criteria. Okay. So first, the company had to blindly test seven samples, where five came from human cell lines derived from individuals with balloon syndrome. 23 and me scored a perfect 70 out of 70. Now, this is 70 tests, 70 samples, again, for a test, going to be used on millions of people. Next, for validation and reproducibility, the company ran 2,880 replicates and an additional 105 saliva samples negative for the balloon syndrome being variant. Now, 2,880 replicates. So, replicates means these are copies these are identical samples. And so what we see here then is the ability to get the same test results on the same sample over and over again in two separate laboratory sites. What we don't know is if we have 2,880 different samples from 2,880 different people, what would the results be? No, don't know. And if you're familiar with tests for um, HIV, for example, um, there are a lot of 
conditions that can mimic it and can give false positive because of the presence of protein. Recent vaccination, for example, can give a false positive. <laughs> okay, so next, and that's the network. So finally, the company addressed the criticism of some in the genetic conference field as to whether untrained consumer could use the test properly and interpret the results. I consider this the home diagnostics equivalent of FDA criteria for an over-the-counter cold remedy. The average consumer can properly follow the instructions and know when medical assistance should be sought. So user carrier reports were provided to a diverse set of volunteers who represented the demographics of the United States. Remember, these are Ashkenazi Jews. So why would you want to represent the demographics of the United States if it only affects Ashkenazi Jews? How about the demographics of Ashkenazi Jews? But hey, nobody asked me. 90% of the participants correctly answered questions that demonstrated an understanding of the test results. In other words, 90% of people correctly answered the question, demonstrating an understanding of, this is my editorial, the standard of care. And their understanding that they were to take the action the FDA approved of. Okay. It's unclear at this point how much education the moderator provided before the test was administered to the volunteers. Specifically, we don't know fully whether the information provided by the moderator can want the material provided on 2.3 and the member website. In other words, we don't know what information is given with the test and if that and only that information is given during the study. So we don't know. And so we have a fair amount of uh, criticism. And so this test sells for $99, and these are um, tests on an individual DNA plus a few cells that naturally become detached in one saliva. And they provide results over 170 tra traits estimated with the disease. And so a regulated question the reliability of the test and the appropriateness of directly providing the consumer with actionable medical information. So why would you provide a consumer with medical information that they could take action on. And even when reproducible, most results do not give a clear-cut yes or no answer of one's risk. Some traits in most diseases result from not only variations in more than one gene, but they can be further affected by environmental issues such as diet. And so, there's a regulatory argument, of course, and the argument is one that basically says, hey, uh, patients should go through their insurance company and their doctor, and everyone should get a piece of the action. The patient can't act independently because then the money might not go in the right direction or to the right people. Okay. But here we are. Companies like Two, Three, and Me have been criticized for over-interpreting the impact of genetic variation most of which are statistical associations, not necessarily clear-cut cause and effect. For example, a preference for the herb cilantro is listed in a 2-3-me profile as associated with a 10% chance of liking or disliking it. Making a promise based on such a small change is almost meaningless, and my result was exactly the opposite of the one expected with my uh, with cilantro. But the truth of the matter is that consumer demand for genetic information is only increasing, and we'll soon be walking around with our entire DNA sequence on a flash drive or chip in our health insurance card. 
So what's going on here then is they are starting by trying to whet the appetite of the public by using a gene that is of absolutely uh, no importance, whatever. In other words, if the gene affects 1 in 50,000, not affects, it's carried by 1 in 50,000, it only affects offspring of two carriers, then you darn near need brothers and sisters, at least cousins, to um, mate in order to have any probability of this gene being passed on one more generation. And, and that's if there's anything more than a, anything less than 2.5 billion Ashkenazi Jews, the chance of this mutation going even two more generations is pretty much zero. All right, so baby steps. The FDA wisely chose to start slow with a very well-documented single gene receptor trait to test the reproducibility of your testing. Individuals born with balloon syndrome experience stunted growth, rarely reaching five feet in height, and are very light sensitive and predisposed to cancer, such that life expectancy is in the 20s. Okay. This trait is well known to occur as a result of changes in a gene that codes for a DNA twisting enzyme involving cell division and DNA repair. One-third of Bloom's syndrome cases generally occur in one of 50,000 people. And they're restricted to individuals with Ashkenazi Jewish background. Ah, they're saying one in 142 Jews carry this trait. Now, I think it's a DNA twisting enzyme. Now, autosomal excessive gene variations don't carry the acute anxiety of personal disease risk. And again, the big deal here is can we get somebody, in this case an Ashkenazi Jew, to sterilize themselves, have abortions, in other ways uh, exterminate themselves based on a home test. And so this is, this is what, uh, what they're doing. And they even say the test is most relevant for people who are expecting to have children, if both parents have the version of the gene, the child will have the disorder. The disease is so rare, this is unlikely to happen, but in cases where both parents are of Jewish descent, there is a 1 in 50,000 chance that a person will have the disorder. And this is, this is really uh, it's a pretty rare stuff. And you say this is a real sale at less than $1,000. This news is positive for the company, 23andMe, and also for Illumina, the largest maker of DNA sequencing gear, and so and all of their, uh, their providers. So this is very, very uh, interesting stuff. And so what do you do? What do you do about this? Well, so... What you do is you do not interrupt regularly scheduled programming. In other words, the genetic tests that are released to the market don't even buzz, don't, don't even pry yourself away from your TV set if you're still watching that. Um, simply ignore it. And this has the veneer of scientific study when actually 
uh, if you look at the practical impact, now on the medical med on the medical website they say one in fifty thousand carry oh, one in fifty thousand are affected. Okay, one in fifty thousand are affected. So again, one in fifty thousand is not a huge jump up and down thing. Now you got autism going on, which is affecting one in sixty-eight, and you know you got to you got to take a look at what's going on here. So here we have a disorder where the person is born basically uh, normal, functional. Okay, they only go to five feet, and they live till the age of twenty-something. Do we really need to exterminate these people before they're ever born? And you can even argue that, uh, as far as a, from a parental point of view, you say, well, this kid can't live a full life. You know, encourage a kid to reproduce in his late teens, and of course, with someone who's not similarly affected, and they have a great chance of having children and grandchildren who are very healthy. So it doesn't seem to me that there's a compelling reason to. Uh, abort these children. They don't necessarily, honestly, children, these people, because they do live to adulthood, they live into their 20s. So you really have to uh, question, one, even the value of the test, and then you have to question what's really going on. So what's really going on is the programming of the public, the programming of citizens, wanting to refer to them as patients, as people, programming people to internalize the standard of care, follow the standard of care, purchase laboratory testing on their own, and follow the instructions even to their own detriment, even to their own extermination. And that's the, the very important significance of this particular test. And, and the fact that this test is approved without um, safety or effectiveness uh, requirements and that in the future the plan is to, is to approve all tests without safety or effectiveness requirements or even approve, just put them on the market. If the plan then really is to indoctrinate the public in the standard of care so that they will follow the standard of care without the doctors urging and they will spend money, they will consume, and they will use the information to their own detriment. Now, it really made this very obvious to me as I was homeschooling my children. And we reached a point where they were about 13 years old. Uh, the oldest one was 13. I said, okay, send you off to school. So she went to school, and I didn't really hear much. And the younger uh, two went to school, and they came back and said, Mom, they told us in health class, blah, 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 whatever it was. I said, that's not true. That's false. That's totally false. And so what I heard my children bringing back to me was the same curriculum I had received in medical school, and they are now indoctrinating children under the guise of health class at the age of, in my case, uh, what I noticed the kids, it's age 10, 10, 12, 14, that their body is uh, a disease factory, the body uh, needs the doctor inspecting and fondling it every single year. The body needs drugs to function properly. Not the street drugs, but the prescription drugs, the ones you get from the drugstore, those are the good ones. And these kids are, are indoctrinated into all of 
these falsehoods. This whole 50% uh, of it is false, but we don't know which 50%. That's they're coming back in 1970-something, and they're taking that same body of knowledge from 1970-something and teaching this to our children, K through 22, to indoctrinate them to administer to themselves the standard of care. And what we see now with these tests being okayed over the counter, tests that have very little utility, um, is that the programming is in place. We now have at least one generation thoroughly um, indoctrinated in the standard of care from kindergarten up to fourth year college. And now we're putting stuff on the market for them to ingest to their own detriment. And the question is, will they do it? Will they do it? So this is a test. It's only a test. And of course, they're using a test. And that's what's going on. Thank you, Navigation. You are listening to Healing with Dr. Daniel on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. And please do visit um, vitalitycapsule.com. And actually, you can visit Amazon and get my book, Murder by Medicine is No Accident. That's a good one. Murder by Medicine is No Accident. Check it out, read it, and you know, get yourself caught up on what, what's going on here. And the important thing is not to be an agent in your demise. The medical industrial complex cannot murder you without your cooperation. And I'm telling you, it takes a lot of it, a lot of it. So do not participate. Do not um, show up. <laughs> Don't find the test. If you're a victim of health class, in uh, K through 22, just everything you've ever been told, just consider that the opposite might be true. Remember, this is only a test. If this succeeds, if people buy this test, if they take this test, if they actually use the result, then there's more coming. There's more coming. And it, it won't be pretty. All right, so we have questions. Let's see. Let's see how my new system is working here. Hi, you're on the air. What's your name and what's your question? Uh, hi, my name is Askia Muhammad. How are you doing, Dr. Daniels? Hi. Uh, I heard you a couple months back on uh, WOL Carl Nelson show. And uh, oh, I yeah. started getting in contact try to get in contact with you, but you know, you're a busy person. I'm a busy person. So, but it's good to hear your voice and good to hear you in live spirit. Um, I got two questions, one comment. I'm a 60 year baby and my grandmother was from uh, Black Mountain, North Carolina. And I was raised up in North Carolina and Atlanta, Georgia. I remember her giving me uh, for every solstice. She gave mm -hmm. all our children. Uh, uh, my mother had 18 children. And uh, mm -hmm. so she gave us all uh, uh, kerosene. That's number one. Mm -hmm. And then she gave us uh, uh, turpentine. 
And I was so surprised to hear you on Carnell's show. And I'm like, man. And I've been taking, I'm 55 years old now. I haven't been to the doctor in 32 years. Um, my health is just, uh, I mean, it's just beautiful. You know, you know, I exercise and I watch my diet and uh, mm-hmm. I grow some of my own food. So that's the comment I want to get you for. Thank you for all the information you put out there. Because people always thought I was crazy when I was telling them about kerosene. She used to make the kerosene and kerosene candy. Uh, mm-hmm. And then she, and she used to do the thing, the sugar thing, just like you did, sugar cubes. Um, I want I want to ask you for different weight. Like my weight is like two hundred seven pounds. I'm six feet one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I keep my weight anywhere fluctuating. Depends how I go over fasting from an eighty, a hundred and eighty to two hundred. I never go over two hundred. Not, not, not much more time left. What's the question? Oh, okay, the question is. Uh, is it a different uh, uh, doses for people who wait? And the second question is, uh, uh, how about someone who's getting older and they're starting to forget a little bit? What is a good herbal? Other than Gola Cola, what is a good herbal for them? <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, it uh, seems to be teaspoon of turpentine does it, although some people who are heavier have emailed me to say they try higher doses and they absolutely love it. So that's that's uh, that one. Um, as far as an herb for memory, the best thing for memory is to divorce yourself from the grocery store and the over-the-counter um, medications of any kind. So it's not like you can reverse that stuff when you're still putting it in. So you do grow part of your food. It sounds like you need to go a little bit further and take a closer inspection to your diet. The other thing you do is Vitality Capsules, which you can get at VitalityCapsules.com, and that scrubs and cleans out your system, and so that gets your brain working better. Okay. Oh, it's not for me. It was someone else. I'm fine. Oh, well, someone else then. Someone else. You know, yeah, whoever okay, else. Okay. Yeah. 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 They And they do do the drugstore and the pharmaceuticals. Oh, there you go. Oh, well, that no chance. <laughs> <laughs> so Because well, they say, look, what you spec? <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, so I tune in again Sunday, March the 1st at 8. Right. Uh, okay. Thank you for your help. Okay. Yes. Okay. You're welcome. I have a button here. Click. It's not. Ah, I got it. Okay. Good. Okay. Your name and your question. Hi, Dr. Daniels. This is Holly. Oh, hi, Holly. How are you doing? Hi, Dr. Daniels. How are you? I've been having problems with. I've been having problems with parasites for a couple of years now, and I've gotten rid of a lot of them, but they're now in areas I can't seem to get. Um, Is there something I can do that would be really good to get them out of those places? Like they're in the brain or in the ears? No, water fasting gets them out of deeper places. So if you've already, you know, done quite a bit of work and you've, you know, expelled them from a lot of places and you're still hiding in a few places that you can tell, then um, you can go the next step in terms of cleansing, in terms of water fast. But what might also be even better is to take a closer look at what you're doing to encourage them. So you have to say, wait, there's something I'm doing to make these visitors feel very, very welcome. And you just have to take a close uh, inspection of that. Even when I change my diet and I try everything, um, it still seems like they're, they're hard to get to get them out. And I do animals. Right, so I'm just saying fasting, fasting would be the um, 
next step. So the next step to get them out would be fasting or again take a really close look at what you're doing. All right, great. Okay, there's a couple of questions in our chat room. <laughs> All right, what's your go-to home remedy for the flu or pneumonia, especially for those who don't have a great diet and are filled with toxins? Okay, so let's say pneumonia, you're on the bed, it's on the diet, you're asking for air, definitely take your quarter cup of castor and rub Vicks on your chest. That's, uh, that should revive you pretty quickly. And of course, uh, drink and put water in as everything else starts uh, coming out. Okay. Disease only occurs if both parents have the mutation. Yes, it blooms disease. It seems like almost every test out there has some degree of false positive. The answer is yes, they do. They're designed that way. Okay, so we only have a few seconds left. I want to welcome and thank you for tuning in tonight. And we'll see you again next week on Tuesday.